I'm gonna wait your time Far from this upper for forevermore I'm gonna work the strong Make the sweat drip out of every pore And I'm bleeding and I'm bleeding and I'm bleeding right before the Lord All the words are gonna bleed from me and I will sing no more Well, I guess we all do have to go back home But the question is, what is that home? And that is trusting ourselves trusting our gut trusting our ability to think common sense is out the window we have a lot of disrupt destructive behavior in things you know one thing that i have noticed is that for some reason for some godforsaken reason we have people telling us that we are just not capable of solving problems. We're being made to feel that we're trapped, that there is no choice, no avenue, no way out. The boot is on your face, you're done. This is how the whole world feels. When your doctors are refusing to treat you, oaths out the window. When people are refusing to see you, out the window. No one respects what you have to say, what your feelings are, what you want. And that's to be able to live free, to be able to provide for your family. They are strangulating every portion. And then you have to think to yourself, well, what am I going to do? What do I do? Do I just give up? And you have to think. For those of you that are religious, does God ever change his mind? Does God say, oh, yeah, you know what? Totally changed my mind. It's kind of like with your kids. Do you just change your mind? No. Actions and efforts do. If I take away my kid's phone, if she does her chores, studies, gets straight A's, she gets it back. Her actions want me to alleviate whatever frustration or lack she has. Her effort into trying to get things better makes it all that wild. The only person that can change the future is you. The only per person that can change today is you. It's not the demagogues. It's not your government. It's not your neighbor, right? I mean, collectively, it's everybody. But it starts with you. I mean, how are you going to change? Where's that music coming from? This is really distracting. Um, <laughs> this is so weird. Where did this music come from? Okay, um, there we go. I found it. So the that was so weird. I'm so sorry. That totally distracted me. But I, I, I see this all the time with people just freaking out. I can't work. I can't function. I can't leave my house. I can't go and shop. I'm not allowed to do anything. They're telling me how I should act, how I should dress, how I should operate my business, how I should, just how I should do anything. You're being told exactly that. You're being told that you have no say. You're being told and that 
is that raises fear, right? When someone tells you, you either obey or you will not work, you will not eat, you will not be educated, you will not be seen by the doctor. Why? Your neck is broken. You may remain paralyzed. Do as we say, but we refuse to treat you. What happened to your oath? What happened to it? How is it that they get away from it? Because of fear. Fear. And we've talked about it. It's one of the most destructive things on the planet. It's fear. It's the most powerful weapon used against every single man, woman, and child on this planet. Fear. Fear. You know, Prophet Isaiah had said that people would be in a pit or a snare, uh, you know, during the end times, let's say, right? This pit is not a pit. It's a trap. Everybody right now across the world feels like they're in a trap, in a prison, a prison of fear, right? A prison of fear, a personal living hell. And this is actually right here. We're living it right now. We're in a personal living hell. We have a president we didn't elect, right? We have an administration that is putting corporations over people. We have an administration that says, oh, my son's computer, that's all a schmear campaign. Uh, no, it's video evidence. It's email evidence. <laughs> Wait till you see how much more there is. Oh, the children at the border, it's okay. They're just getting gang raped and killed, but that's fine. That's why we're taking away their shoelaces. So they stop killing each other or hanging themselves because they're being tortured. We're in this kind of world where you want to go shopping and you have people saying, cover your mouth because I said so, or else you are not allowed to eat. When you go to the doctor, have you gotten the vaccine? Let me stick this up your nose and check that you're not infected with a disease that we don't even know how to check because we don't have a live virus and we're not providing a live virus to any laboratory. So just trust us because we said so. Now, if you don't take this test or this vaccine, you will not be treated for your health ailment. I don't care if you die. Oh, you want to travel? Yeah, sorry. You need to abide by our rules. You either take this or you go nowhere. Your brain is freaking out, right? You're, you're freaking out. You're like, what do I do? Do I not live? I mean, my mother even said, well, I want to be able to do things. Huh? So you choose to enslave yourself to abide by whatever the demagogues say, because you want to do things. This is it. It's not about believing in COVID or whatever. That's stupid. It's about your right. You have the right to say no. When you can't say, no, I don't want that in my body, and you are restricted on freedoms, <laughs> that's when you know, when you realize that you are not free. You just don't see the chains. You don't see the chains. And I've been saying this for three years. And the chains they used were influence operations, advertising, movies, music. I mean, they had superstars putting on video, like who gives a shit what JLo has to say? Like, what do I care what Robert De Niro has to say? Well, I'm sorry. When did they become the people that tell me how to think? Oh, you know, if you don't see a store with this sticker, they're not abiding by the rules. So don't give them your business. That's legit what they were saying on that video. You have them telling you, go get the vaccine. Half of them haven't received it. 
obey, obey, obey. That's what they're telling you. But here's the thing. You have a strength that makes them tremble. You have a power that makes them kneel. We get the knees. You have a sword that is so mighty that they just don't want you to see that it's already in your hand. So they scare you. They stick you in that box. They put you in that prison. They tell you everything they're going to do to you. And they smile while they do it. They're screaming, kill white babies, kill white people, kill black people, kill red people, kill whatever they say. They scream it out. Let's kill them all. Burn every city to the ground. They're saying it. And, and your selected administration is doing absolutely nothing. You're in fear. My house might be torched because someone said so. Someone may turn around and put a bullet in my head because they don't like the color of my skin. I may eat something in a way that triggers someone. So they're allowed to kill me and not get in trouble because my shade of skin is not the correct one. Kind of like, you know, that footballer, obviously, correct shade of skin, kills five people in California. They were the wrong colored skin. Nobody's talking about that. But a thug that provokes gets hit by a rubber bullet. We got to burn cities to the ground. Faith. Faith. God is so huge, so awesome, that there is nothing that can block out his sound, his voice, and his actions. He's camouflaged within each and every one of you. If there is a flood, you're not going to die. If there is an earthquake, you will not die. I told you about volcanoes. Oh, boy. Like I said, oh, boy. But do you believe that you will burn? His hand is mightier than anything. Mightier than anything. All you have to do is not be scared. You know, the way we overcome fear, like normally, right, is to understand fear, right? You put your fear under a microscope, you dissect it, you see what it is that, that is your fear, right? And if all of you actually sat down on your own time and just on a paper, put down what you're scared of, right? <clears throat> and then you have to put the context, like, you know, what's the worst thing that can happen if your fear is realized like what's the worst thing that can happen what's the worst thing right be paralyzed lose a friend lose a job die what's the worst thing and then you have to rationalize it all right so that's the worst outcome right okay and so you just got to deal with it face it head on you got to rationalize it and understand it you know <laughs> franklin roosevelt being when he was inaugurated in 1933, said that the only thing to fear is fear itself, right? Because fear keeps you from accomplishing things, takes a toll on your mental health, and totally kills your confidence completely, 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 completely. It annihilates you as a person. It completely takes away any passion to do things, any anything, any want to do anything. It's like, what's the point? 
And the thing is, it's that people demand to be told, right? They need to be told. They need to be held by the hand and told. I'm going to tell you. Why do you need to be told? Why does someone need to hold your hand? Why do you have to be told how things are done? Why don't you just do something? Do something because you can. I've seen messages like that all the time. I'm pretty sure most of them were deployed as bots. But for the people out there that really sit there and say, well, what is it? What's going to happen? Or, uh, okay, so things are better, right? For sure. And it's like, stop trying to reassure yourself and understand just how powerful you are and how threatened they are when you wake up. The veil is gone. They're done. They're toast. They're finished. There are things happening right now that people just don't seem to understand. You know, I saw some things in the news and I'm like, what is going on? What is going on? There are people that are asking, oh, tell me, what does this say? Or like when they read the Bible, why do you need someone to explain it to you? Or your Torah or your Quran? Why do you need someone to explain it to you? Or like drops or whatever. Why do you need someone to explain it to you? You can read you can comprehend your eyes and your ears are different than the person next to you. They comprehend, see, and hear on different levels. Do not look to others to tell you what something says. You cannot see because your eyes cannot see. You cannot hear because your eyes cannot hear. And for all of you that are Walking with sight. Oh, I can see this. You fail. You fail. You fail again and again and again and again. Because the only way you can see anything is when you are not afraid. When you are not afraid and you own it all, they have no power over you. You know, I saw that, um, and I'm going to try to find that video on how to play it too, but um, where, you know, a couple of mask Nazis came into a store in Canada, in Canada, where they're all subjects and they're no, they know they're fucked from the get go. They have no way out. They are subjects of the queen off with their head. Their law is gospel. There is no I vote. It's just pretend. OK. And yet they fear nothing. And the people stood together and told them to get out. Why is this not happening in the United States where you on paper are actually free, where your voice actually can make a difference? Why are we all sitting idly? Why aren't we grouping together to go and have actual protests? Go and purchase tickets to a major league baseball game, an NBA game, something that's televised, right? Walk in there with a hundred people, go into a Walmart with a hundred people. And do not wear your mask and stand together. I saw that group where they went shopping together maskless. They feel powerful in numbers. And that's unfortunate because one of you is enough. But if you want the people to see, why not? Why not? Why aren't you bonding together with everyone and saying no more? No more. You know, I am shocked, you know, that people are shocked about the whole 
uh, George Floyd thing. People don't even see just what a big setup this is. They already had video that his knee was on the shoulder, not the neck. But they paid the family millions of dollars. And you have to think millions of dollars to make him disappear or millions of dollars is a sacrifice. Which one? Millions. And now it turns out he wasn't even on his neck. And why did they do this? Because they want the cities to burn. They are hijacking bonafide claims of actual prejudice. It is 2021. But there are prejudice. There are prejudice. There are, period. There are. I saw it in the school system here in Cleveland. That's so freaking woke. They have the stupidest teachers teaching in the inner city. They have the best programs and the stupidest teachers. Teachers that don't identify by a gender. Teachers that have gotten a simple four-year degree in teaching and they know nothing. They go by slides. They're complete idiots. And they put them in inner city schools so they can educate kids to be idiots too. They don't have good teachers. That's racism. That's how you know your community is racist. When the quality of the teachers you have are the woke idiots. The ones that went through Teach America programs that are woke idiots. The ones that are giving your children. I, my daughter was given a book to read to apologize for the skin color she had. And what did I do? I was like, shit, I got to get her out of here. But you know, there's free choice as long as you live within boundaries that only have like two schools. So either I was going to take her to a private school and pay 45000 a year, which I don't have, or I was going to have to move and I can't move because I have a lease. So what do I have to do? I've got to rent two places <laughs> because my kid is not going to sit there and write a report on why she, she should apologize for being born with a shade of color they don't like, right? As parents, we're supposed to protect our kids. What about all the kids that live in the projects that are inner city kids that are getting shitty teachers, shitty teachers, crappy teachers. They have, oh my God, you should see some of these teachers. And then they say, we're not racist, we're totally woke. No, you're not. You're giving them the shitty teachers. You're not giving them the great teachers that provoke their thinking. You're not giving them the teachers that say, come here, boy. Let me show you. Forget this common core. Let me show you something. It's like this. It's like this. Teachers that take time. Why do you get that in the suburbs and in private schools? But in our inner city schools, we get crap because they're racist. They are. They want to keep them dumb. They're like, they're already dumb. Their parents are dumb because they can't get them out of here. This is how they think. So we're just going to give them dumb teachers too. That's how they think. That is exactly how they think. And then they give them all these programs. Guys, the school my daughter was at had a curriculum like no other. It's in, It was an international baccalaureate program. They taught Chinese and Arabic. They were really well. But the, but the kids there were not learning. The teachers there were not teaching. It was the saddest sight ever. The saddest sight. The saddest sight. And they keep them in poverty. And then when they righteously speak up, they weaponize it and they make them hate. They turn that love for their heritage, that love for their people, that love for their neighbor, that love for their congregation at church, that love for anyone around them into pure and utter rage. And then they burn it all down. And then they all look like idiots. 
all like idiots. And we have the corporations pushing that. And it's so sad to see. So sad. Because it's an endless, vicious cycle. Just so sad. I saw a picture of a business that said, we stand with, you know, whatever, Black Lives Matter. Trashed completely. Did they really think that putting up a sign was going to save them? When you're enraged, you don't see anything but red. When you're enraged, you obviously are not thinking. Well, there's many times, there's many, many times that I am enraged. Many times. And boy, every single time, I mess up. Because I don't think. You know, but when I throw that stone... No matter how many places it ricochets from, it's going to find its target because it's a righteous stone. Remember that. It's a righteous stone and it will hit the target right where it needs to be. I am so saddened that so many people need help to interpret things, to be told what the word of God is. What does the law say? What are my rights? What does that mean? What does the tweet mean? What does the drop mean? What does this mean? You are just as capable of understanding it through your own eyes. What is it? Um, a, a painting that I see, I will see different than yours because my interpretation of everything is completely different than yours because it's different. It's completely different. What we need to understand is that we should not fear anything. There is nothing that you cannot conquer. There is nothing that you cannot overcome. And there is nothing, especially in this nation, that they can force you to do. Realize that while we have that. Realize that while you still have it on paper. The more they push, the more you need to stand. The more they drop you to the knee, your knees, the more you need to shoot up like you're doing burpees. You need to be confident. You need to understand that your sword is massive. Your yielding, you can, you can actually wield that sword so hard, so hard. And they won't even see it coming. You know, God exposes every single bad person in your life at any time. And it's very important that if they're part of your life or not part of your life, you should let, let them be. You have to be kind and loving. Boy, I struggle with that. Regardless, your enemy is within your home, outside your home, all against you. We have to remain kind. We have to remain humane, right? We must understand that we are not the ones to punish anyone. I say this many, many times because I struggle. There will be that time when I will have to cast that stone and, and, and point the finger when I am not. I feel so bad. I feel bad because they don't understand what they are doing. Enemies, they like sling hate and gossip. They spread lies. They steal. They sabotage. They obfuscate, they derail divine plans, righteous plans to elevate themselves. When you're in the presence of your enemies, if God wants to lift you up, 
he will. In the presence of all your enemies, let him take over. And how do you do that? By trusting yourself. Trusting yourself. You know, um, I remember when my father, before he passed away, he had gone to Mount Athos. And I asked him, you know, where do they do all day up there? I mean, they're just like on a mountain, all up there. And he said, believe it or not, they're constantly praying. Like constantly. I was like, like every moment, like when they're on the toilet cooking, like what? He's like all the time. They utter prayers. And you know, all of you are guilty of this as myself. We only pray when we're in trouble. We only pray when, you know, things are bad. We only pray when, and I do this too. God, forgive me, I do this too. We only pray then, and we should remember to pray all the time, even when times are good. Your enemy's evil is part of life, just as sure as the sun will rise tomorrow. They will oppose you. They will attack you. They will come to discourage you. They will come to sway you. They will come to annihilate you and put you in that prison that box of fear to feel trapped like a rat. And the only thing that I can say is that you're going to have tons of enemies and all those enemies will present tons of problems, tons of challenges, just like now. And we all have to find it within ourselves to forgive them because they really don't know what they're doing. They really don't. I mean, if you think about it, if we were able to love every person next to us the way we should, none of this would be happening. I mean, take a person that just broke down a store in Minneapolis because a thug got shot in the ear for being aggressive to police, right? Just take a minute for a second. That thug breaks that, that window, destroys that business, whatever. And then that thug gets taken out of that contact, gets zoomed up to the moon and put there and says, now look down there. Look at what you did. What did that store owner do to you? Nothing. Why did you do it? Because black lives matter. What does that mean? How are you showcasing how your life is more important than another? How are you doing that by smashing windows? How are you doing that by setting fire? How are you doing that by demonizing another shade of skin that you believe is responsible for it? Think, I have him on the moon and I'm talking to him now as a child. And he's pulled away from the whole situation so he can look down and see what he has done. Do you really believe that that person that I just scolded and let him see from afar what he has done, that he will not fall down on his knees and say, sorry, I didn't know what I was doing. I was just blinded with rage. I'm so sorry. Of course, of course they will. And I think we need to, I need to remember that because I get so mean and, and angry and I'm like, oh, just release <laughs> the winds and let's get this on. And it's like, nope, nope, nope. Not all of them are enjoying it. 
That's the thing. How many of them are actually enjoying it? If your enemy, say you have an enemy, right, in front of you, and they're hungry, do you feed them? Of course you do. You do. If they're thirsty and dying of thirst, like if I was on the street and I confronted that really, really, really bad person that did me wrong, if I if they were thirsty, would I give them water? And God knows I, I am struggling. And I think this is like my challenge to forgive someone. If they were thirsty, would I give them something to drink? Or if they were hungry, would I give them something to eat? And there's only one person in this reality construct that I would say no. And then as I say no, I'm like, but that just makes me just as worse. Right? Even though I'll probably say no. I'll probably sit there with a hose of water and have them watch me drink. This is how upset I am at this kind of evil. But I'll probably repent that, right? I will probably be, oh my gosh, that's not the right thing. I shouldn't do that. And hence, you know, how do you overcome this? I mean, it's really hard. They say you overcome evil with good, right? This is what we're taught. And it's like, nope, I want to fight fire with fire. But I must learn that, that this is tried and tested. It doesn't work. It doesn't work. I mean, today I, I, I put out an article about how the Hippocratic Oath is completely out the window. And every time I see a poster showing a doctor or a nurse as a hero, I want to set it on fire. I, I, I want them strung by their toes for murder, for doing harm to patients. I want to string them up by their toes and get them flogged if I could. I'm, I'm telling you how I feel. Obviously, I wouldn't do that, but I'm telling you how I feel. Because they have no remorse. They have been elevated to a status level of being a god. And therefore, they act like it. And this is where you have elevated your politicians. Every single one of them. You forget that they are only human. You forget huh, that all they do is tell you how they're looking out for you. Everyone's looking out for you. Tell you what, you have absolutely nothing to fear from enemies, especially enemies that want to do harm to you because you will not allow it. You can conquer anything with your faith. Anything. There's nothing you cannot conquer. There is nothing they can do to you. And you are stronger than that, smarter than that, and you will complete an action. If you want mercy from your mom and dad for being punished and sitting in your room all day, you're going to do something to tell them, hey, kind of help me out here. You're going to act like you need help. You're not just going to sit there and wait for someone to give you a hand. If my kid fell into a ditch playing, right, and it's benign, and my kid's like, come get me out, I'll be like, um, why don't you learn how to climb out of there? Well, no, I'm like really tired and it's going to get dirt in my fingers and all. And I would tell my child, no, you need to at least try. 
You need to at least try. So how dare anybody, anybody ask for help and mercy if you are not doing something? If you are not doing something, something small, anything in your power, if you are not doing something, why would he help you? Why would your parent put their hand in and give you a pull to take you out of that pit if you are not doing anything? I am sure that there have been many, many times throughout history uh, when he decided that he's going to eradicate humankind. We're going to flood them. We're gonna, they're not listening. We're going to burn, you know, we're going to nuke this. We're going to do that. We're going to get rid of these people because they're just evil and corrupt. But those that tried, because you're born in sin, you are a sinner. You are born in sin. Those that tried, those that felt bad, those that suffered and overcame the suffrage, those that tried their best to be kind, those that tried their best to come out of that pit themselves, no matter how much dirt they got in the news, they're like, oh, I'm just going to try again. I'm going to try again, and I will try again. Those that tried were saved. I mean, that's, that's usually how the story goes. That is how the story goes. And the one thing that a lot of people fear is taking risks. Risks. And I'll tell you why people feel risk is too much. It's a risk of you not getting the COVID vaccine because the risk is you will never shop. You will not travel. You will not be able to go to the doctor. Your kid will not be able to go to school because of risk. It's a risk. I mean, is your life worth living if you're not going to take a risk? I wanted to play for you a clip of a 103-year-old man just before he died, right? He created an insurance company. Just before he died, he made this video of his advice to people. Take a listen. I'm Iron Steve. I'm 103 years old. I started and grew my own business. You want my advice? Stop looking for advice. Go out and do something and stick to it. Come hell or high water. Remember, everything is a risk. Getting married, having a baby, crossing the street. I would stick around, but I have new business to attend to. Now go take a risk. Huh. Did you see that? So he lived for 103 years. He made a living off of hedging off of risk. And his life was filled with risks. And what was his advice? Stop looking for advice. Just do stuff. Do things. Be inspired. Get things done. Because there's a lot of things people are not telling you. Huh? Today I saw an article from the Epic Times talking about finding packed-in migrants in a rail car. We're going to talk about that because we've talked about this before. Oh, a long, long time ago. And you'll be surprised where that rail car was. 
Anybody for Beto? We'll talk about that. On the other hand, we have the royals of the United Kingdom being embraced like some leaders. And, and then I hear that there's a Messiah arising in Israel. And it's like, this is so nuts. And then I see an article that the Jewish Post is saying that Mossad was responsible for Stuxnet. I kid you not. I kid you not. When I saw that, I was like, stop. Are you kidding? Stop. I think it was um, Praying Medic that um, posted it. And I was like, what? This is quite interesting. Okay, so the Jerusalem Post says, and I'll share the article so you guys can see it. And this was so bizarre to me. Because that's, that's, it's, it's extremely interesting because, you know, you guys know Bergy gives me a lot of crap for Stuxnet. We know that Mossad didn't do it. He gives me a lot of crap about it. He's like, how'd that work out? Right? How'd that work out? How did Stuxnet work out? Tori, Tor, Tor, right? So they say that Mossad was behind the cyber attack on Iran's Natanza's nuclear facility. What? What? So Mossad was reportedly behind the cyber attack. Now, Mossad is like the equivalent of the CIA here, MI6, there, German intelligence, blah, blah, blah. But Stuxnet was created within the United States. I mean, it was actually an idea I had of creating software within floppy drives so that we can track who takes information from where. I did that, right? I did that long, long, long time ago. And it was weaponized. So now they're saying that Mossad, their own CIA, did the attack? I don't buy it. I don't buy it. I don't buy it. The one thing that Israel's intelligence community wouldn't do is provoke Iran right now when there's so much uncertainty. So this for me is very interesting. It is very interesting, specifically because we have the selected administration uh, talking about giving them uh, the ability to um, have nuclear facilities and uh, Joe Biden, you know, coming out and saying, oh, yeah, we're not going to give him a nuclear. Yeah, you're not going to do it, but Kamala is. Um, that's the plan anyway. Things are strange. And while we're focused on all these things, like the, <laughs> like <laughs> there's so much that they're making us focus on. People are losing faith. People are changing faith. People are redirecting faith. You know, there's a lot of people right now in, in leadership of major faiths. And I was privy to hop into a conference call a few of the Orthodox community um, leaders had. And um, they're terrified about the, this whole alien revelation thing and UFOs. Because this is how, you know, more cultish type, you know, religions occur. And I mean, let's not forget Scientology, right? So this is how they respond and how um, people seem to want instant gratification and advice, right? Instant gratification. I see it all the time. I have people telling me, you're, you, you always speak in riddles. 
I speak English. And if you don't understand what I'm saying, maybe your hearers can't hear me. I don't think I speak in riddles. I do have unfinished sentences, but I don't speak in riddles. Here's another riddle that's not, that was told, that was, I was told by someone, why are you speaking in riddles? When I said that, oh great, Prince Philip is dead. Now the God of Vanuatu is dead. And someone was like, why are you speaking riddles? And it's like, all right, I'm gonna address this on my show. I wasn't even gonna bother with responding to that comment. So I'm gonna have the person see what I meant. For all of you that didn't know, Prince Philip is actually a God. Oh yes, he is. Here is a <laughs> report on that from 10 years ago. Hello and welcome to this edition of Reporters. Once upon a time in a distant land, people spoke of a legend, a story about a god born from a volcano, a god who then became a white man and moved to England and married a queen. Now the legend goes that the man will return to his land on his 89th birthday to bring prosperity to all. Although it may sound like it, this isn't in fact just a story. The land is the Vanuatu island of Tana, the man is none other than Prince Philip, the husband of the Queen of England. The crucial date was a little earlier this year. Now, Prince Philip has gone as far as to acknowledge his responsibilities with his long-distance followers and has even posed with gifts from the tribe's people. But as with every good legend, there's a twist to this tale of destiny, but also a very happy ending. Our reporters, Fanu Falali and Amos Roberts, have been to the South Pacific to investigate. This is where the story begins. Mount Yasur on the island of Tana in Vanuatu. One of the most active volcanoes in the region. Out of it came the world, life, and Prince Philip, Queen Elizabeth's husband. Once upon a time, there were two women. They were sitting when this volcano came. They had intercourse, then Prince Philip came. Then they were sent back. That's how we know about Prince Philip. He left Tana to go to England as a messenger. Once there, he married the Queen. Prince Philip is the spirit of the garden. According to the prophecy, Prince Philip would return to Tana on his 89th birthday. The day is fast approaching, and at Yaunanen, the entire village is preparing for the occasion. Siko Nathwan is the new chief of Yaonanen. After his grandfather passed away last year, he became the custodian of the village stories, the myths and legends that have defined the belief system of his people over centuries. He's carrying what most here hold as evidence that Prince Philip is from Tana. Everyone in the Pacific says Prince Philip is from England or Greece. England or Greece. But our grandfathers carved the club and sent it off to him with a message saying, if you're from Tana, hold this club and take a picture 
so that everyone who sees the picture will know that you're from Tana. This is the club he is holding. It has been carved here and sent to him. You see it in this photo. So I've told you about um, my Greek uh, lineage story before. And so, again, I don't want to repeat. But wait, it gets better. They think he's a god. I'm just letting you know if you caught that. I know that someone messaged me. They've actually taken on a project to transcribe um, my shows. So maybe you can search for that. But um, I have said about the Blue Bloods and I have um, expressed, you know, my, my, my grandfather's last name from my mother's side um, was, uh, if you actually translate it, it means traitor because he was a traitor to the crown, meaning they did not want to be like that. Um, it's quite important that I um, point that out. Uh, this is uh, this is quite telling. I, I, I just thought I'd I'd um, point that out, and obviously volcanoes, which we talked about before his death. I think the time has nearly come for him to come back. Today is the day that we will open the door. It's still early, but on the village square or Nakamal, the celebrations have already started. It's a big feast that Siko Nathwan is throwing. Representatives of all major villages in Tana have made the trip. Some have even traveled overnight to take part in the celebrations. Not everyone here worships Prince Philip, but all are curious to discover the face of Yaunanen's ancestral spirit. This is a big day. This is him. We've been hearing about him, and now we see him. That is our cousin. I was here when they were carving that club. When I see his photo, it feels like I'm looking at one of my relatives. I, I feel very happy. The younger generations of Tanese struggle to reconcile traditional belief and rational thinking. But there's always a way. For us young people, it's harder to believe he's from Tana. We're educated and we've adopted a different system. But do you personally believe he's from Tana? Yes, I do believe he's from Tana. As the day goes on, anticipation is mounting. But still, no Prince Philip in sight. And it's Siko Nathwan's turn to speak. Today, the 10th of June, is the day when Prince Philip will arrive. Everybody in Tana felt that this is the truth and felt we are part of Yaunanen. Whether you're a good man or a bad man, 
you're part of this community. Sometimes we face problems and difficulties in life. It doesn't come by itself, but it's up to us to decide if we want to be happy or not. While words of wisdom are spoken, some unexpected guests make their entrance. Two British students who have been living on Tana for a few months. I just wanted also to point out that the Greeks actually expelled the royals. I just wanted to point that out, that they were expelled. Feeling very much at home on the island. They've come to Yaunanen with a special message. Antapia. My country's flag is called Union Jack. Union flag. It's a symbol of unity. Another symbol of unity in my country is the royal family. Queen Elizabeth was her husband, Prince Philip. Queen Elizabeth with a mandolin, Prince Philip. Where I come from, his name is His Royal Highness, the Duke of Edinburgh. Philip. Since he married the Queen, Philip has had a duty, a responsibility towards that flag, the British flag. That's why I don't think he will come back today. But I think that one day, after he dies, his spirit will come and will rest here. At the same time, you know, I just felt a bit of a responsibility to tell, to explain to these guys something like this. Because, uh, like I say, they're, they're our family here, you know, these, everyone, every one of them's family, a brother, sister. The Englishmen then pay their respect to the village chief, who swallows the news gracefully. Siko Nathwan may have missed out on his chance to see Prince Philip, but others in Tana haven't. A couple of years ago, a special delegation from a neighbouring village was sent to the UK by a British television programme. Since then, a rivalry has developed between the two villages, and their chief is not attending the ceremony today. We found the group of lucky ambassadors in Ikunala, an hour's drive from Yaunanen. Gathered around the campfire, the men of Ikunala share the story of their surreal visit to Windsor Castle. This is the one taken when we were at Windsor. That's us here. Joel, Posen, Nago, Philip, me and Albi. That's when we were inside the house at Windsor. That's his house. On top of the building, there was a flag. and We were standing inside the house. Everywhere inside there was gold. When I met Philip, I was happy and I nearly cried because it was a prophecy for my grandfathers and my father that this man was their friend, but they were never able to see him, so I met him on their behalf. I'm very glad I did. When the five men set off to meet Prince Philip, they left on a special mission. We asked him, is it Papa ripe or not yet? If it's ripe, you tell me and I will tell your people in Tana. He told me he couldn't tell whether it was ripe or not because there's still a crisis in England. But he said, when you go back, I will send the message out to Tana to let you know when Papa is ready. In Tana, popos are a symbol of life and peace. Prince Philip will come back when the popo is ripe. Meanwhile, the story must survive the passing of time.
Your grandfathers have been telling me this man is from Tana. Back then there was no photo, we just heard there was a man called Philip. But you, you're lucky to see his picture in front of you. Old and young have gathered under the giant banyan tree to learn about Prince Philip. Because England is very cold, you must be a white man. If I lived there for a while, you'd find my skin paler. It is very cold in England, not the same weather as we have here. Even if his skin is white and we are black, the color of the skin is nothing. The blood is the same as what we have. Flesh, blood and spirit, Prince Philip is all of the above. But as a spirit, he's guaranteed eternity. In Yaunanen, festivities are drawing to an end. I wonder what those festivities are. The day was a success. All here are convinced Prince Philip attended in spirit. So this is how you create false gods. Huh. By giving them the power of being a deity. Here's a brief history, we're not going to watch the whole thing, but I'll link it up, of how, um, what the royal house of Greece is. Remember what the story was. There were two women that had sex at the lip of the volcano and out came Prince Philip. Out of the bowels of hell, he arose. Hmm, interesting. The occasion to propose to... Here we go. many of which have never been seen in public before. This episode is about Christian IX's second son, Wilhelm, seen here jumping up and down. And his descendants in Greece, Spain, Romania, and Yugoslavia. I plucked up my courage and asked her if she wanted to come and stay with me in Greece. I said, for goodness sake, do not tell my parents because they will have a fit. Prince Wilhelm and his siblings know that their father will one day be king of Denmark. But nobody can know that Wilhelm will become king first. Wilhelm was Dagmar's and Alexandra's favorite brother and particularly liked to ease up a tense or a serious situation by putting in a sort of a radical joke or Denmark. making a fun Greenland. <laughs> Behind the scenes at his sister Alexandra's wedding to the British heir to the throne in 1863, a lot of attention is paid to the 17-year-old Wilhelm. The British Foreign Secretary has had an idea. Wilhelm can be the new king of Greece. Greek revolutionaries have deposed the country's King Otto, and the great powers are having difficulty agreeing on a suitable replacement. The Greeks were very clear that they did not want to have a king that was coming from a big power uh, because of the influences the big powers would have and, uh, and they didn't want that. But then the British put forward the young Danish prince. The great powers agreed and I think probably uh, felt it uh, the witch herself to become king because there were no strings attached. In Denmark, Wilhelm, who is a cadet at the Naval Academy, leaves home with a packed lunch as usual. 
one of the sandwiches was uh, sardines, which had a lot of oil. So the papers were doubled, and they were newspapers. And when he went to eat that sandwich, he saw that what was printed on the newspaper was that he had been appointed to be the first king of Greece. He said, nobody tell me. On the 17th of September, 1863, the 17-year-old prince starts his long journey to Greece. And now he is no longer known as Wilhelm, but has had to change his name to George, King George I. And so down he went to Greece uh, with, uh, I think, one or two Danish aides with him and, and, and then started life as king of Greece. I don't think he wanted to do that. So he left heartbroken Denmark, whom he adored, and everyone was convinced that he would not last. He ruled 50 years and he's the longest ruler in the Greek history. The reception that awaits him in Athens is overwhelming. And as everyone wants to see the new king, it takes many hours to complete the carriage ride from the harbor up to the palace. He went through a considerable amount of agony because his bladder was bursting at that point. So he discovered a little hut on the side that uh, he essentially wanted to go and have a look at. But in reality, he had a major crisis on it. Um, he then uh, arrived in Athens and the interesting thing is that um, he never had dinner that night because all the cooks had also gone out to see the new king. So his first night in Athens, he went to bed hungry. The young king wakes up in an enormous palace, which has suffered much at the hands of ransacking revolutionaries. George selects a few rooms with a view of the garden, and here he arranges himself as spartanly as he was used to in Denmark. He was terribly lonely because he arrived there not knowing anything about this country, not knowing anything about who was who. But he was a hard worker. He learned Greek very soon. He wrote in Greek perfectly well. In connection with the appointment of George as king, his father has insisted that Queen Victoria hand over Corfu and the other Ionian islands to Greece. The British Khan agreed, and that's how those islands then came back with the king. When he turned up in Greece, they were handed over. This further increases the popularity of the already well-liked George. George understands that Greece's future is dependent on her relationship with the great powers, and this is a deciding factor in his choice of bride. He chose, of course, Russia, because Russia was the great protective power of Greece. And he said, I'm going to marry there. And he went to Russia and inspected all the marriable grand duchesses because there were many. And he found the youngest, who was 15 at that time. George marries the young grand duchess Olga, who is the Tsar's niece. And after the wedding in the Winter Palace, George returns home to Athens with his bride. The only thing she brought with her other than her clothes, was her dolls and teddy bears. She arrives in Greece, she's 15, first court ball. They look everywhere for her, no Queen Olga. But 
she has to preside the board, no? She wasn't found in her apartment, she wasn't found in the sitting rooms. My grandfather, George, got really very nervous. Where's the queen? Where's the queen? Where's the queen? And she was found under the staircase, playing with her dolls and crying. Because she wanted to be a little girl and not to be a queen. Olga's popularity with the Greeks reaches unknown heights when, age 16, she gives birth to a son. The succession is guaranteed. The little prince is named Constantine after Olga's father. And many more children will arrive. At 21 years of age, Olga is already the mother of four children. Within the home, George is responsible for deciding how the now six children should be brought up and he employs a German teacher to ensure that the children learn the virtues of discipline. He made very, very sure that every single one of his children grew up 100% Greek. This was very important to him, so that they would understand the, 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 the country and, and become part of it and become part of it quickly. One day, one of the children, Nikolaus, somehow manages to stick a suction cup to his head so securely that nobody can remove it. He eventually pulled it off for the rest of it. And it left a huge ring on his forehead, which wouldn't have been very important, were it not for the fact that his uncle, William of Glücksburg, was dying. And uh, he went into the room to sort of pay his respects. And uh, his older relations, who were very somber, as you can imagine, at the bedside, seeing this idiotic child come in with a red mark on his forehead, all burst into hysterical laughter. Olga gives birth to Prince Christopher, her seventh child, in 1888. My father was the last one of the family. Uh, he had 22 years difference with his eldest brother. Crown Prince Constantine, the oldest brother, is now ready to marry. My grandfather met uh, Sophie von Preussen in Germany, where he was training as a, an officer with the uh, German army. Constantine and Princess Sophie marry. But the marriage will be the cause of many problems in the future. Sophie is the sister of the aggressive German Kaiser, Wilhelm II. So, you know, that's stuff people don't know about um, at all. I wanted to get to the point where they get kicked out because they were abolished by the Greeks. I wonder if it's here. Um, because King Philip was exiled, right? He was exiled from Greece. And I want to see if they have it in this clip, I think. Okay, yeah, here it is. So this is quite interesting. I want you guys to understand who King Philip really was. In 1917, the Allies demand that Constantine abdicate and go into exile. He may choose his successor, but is told it can't be his eldest son, George who is also seen as pro-German. There were three boys, and uh, I think it's one of the rare occasions in history where all three became king. The first choice is the second son, 24-year-old Prince Alexander, who has been driven to despair by the situation. The whole family had been kicked out, but Alexander, he was lonely, surrounded by enemies of his family, Alexander is nothing but a puppet king. 
and Greece now enters the war on the Allied side. After the First World War, Alexander marries the 21-year-old commoner, Aspasia Manos. I was very good she was not royal. It was about time you had some blood to mix in and uh, make things a bit more, shall we say, human. Aspasia becomes pregnant. Are you listening? After less than a year of happy marriage, a tragic accident befalls Alexander. He went for a walk in the garden of the property where he lived, and his favorite dog was attacked by a monkey. And in separating uh, the fight, the monkey bit him, and blood poisoning ensued. There was nobody who had the, the courage to cut the king's leg off. There was no penicillin in those days. And he died of gangrene, really. Alexander is buried in Athens. His daughter, Alexandra, who was born after her father's death, will later marry the king of Yugoslavia. Through the process of a referendum, the Greeks decide that Alexander's father, Constantine I, should return to the throne. Constantine returns to a country that is at war with Turkey. And 18 months later, the Turks destroy his army, and over a quarter of a million Greeks lose their lives when Smyrna is obliterated. Because of the defeat and the burn and the disaster of Smyrna, again the public opinion turned against him, saying he's responsible for that. So they kicked him out for the second time. Constantine's brother, Prince Andrew, as well as five ministers are also held responsible and are imprisoned. The ministers are all executed, but with a death threat hanging over him, Andrew manages to flee the country, together with his wife and their little boy, Philippos. Many years later, the boy will become known as Prince Philip, consort to Queen Elizabeth II of Great Britain. Constantine is a broken man, and he dies in Italy, just months after being forced into exile for a second time. So I'm going to tell you something that's going to blow your mind a little bit so you know my family history a little bit more and a little bit better. Um, the one thing that Vilmer had was love for Greece. He actually fell in love with Greece and uh, their uh, passion and this is why his one of his sons took a commoner, as they say, to make it more human. Um, so uh, when Constantine was sent out in exile, and Andrew as well was held accountable for it, it was because they refused to help Greece fight Turkey. Uh, they refused to send their army, just so let's make it clear. They refuse to help Greece, which they realize that they are no longer there to buffer with the powers that be that wanted to take over Greece, which is something that Wilhelm and the other uh, royals saw. They were the black sheep, as they say. There were black sheep within the royal family that said, no more, no more, no more. And so 
they say that Prince Philip was born in Italy in exile, right? But this is not true either. So the reason they kicked him out is because they didn't provide an army because they wanted Greece to fall under the crown and become a commonwealth territory of the queen. The deal was my son will marry the queen and you will take Greece as a gift and we will give it to you. So this is why they did it. And this is where it's split. The families decided we either, and these are from all the descendants, you either stay with the bloodline or you're in exile. And we chose to say, nope, rebels, we're with Greece. And the others left. So they had to go find descendants, if that makes sense. So I just wanted to point out who Philip really was. He was not a king of Greece. He was not a prince of Greece, only in name. The Greeks had refused him as they did not accept a king or a queen to rule them as such. Now, again, we come back to the how many times have you heard Russia, the protector of Greece, Russia, the because they shared a common religion. You have to remember uh, tragic stories like Aristotle Onassis, right? This guy took the wife of a U.S. president. Kids murdered, you know, accidents happened. And there's only one, which is, you know, Athena and... She's in check. It's kind of like Britney Spears, right? So I want you guys to understand that the things that we are taught about their history is always told by them. Those that are in power have the pen to write it. Truth is truth. Truth is truth. And it cannot be changed. And um, we're starting to see a lot of changes um, with truth. So I thought I would end with this incredible video of a Jewish man that turns to Jesus and explains why he chose Jesus. Jewish, Jewish man turning to Jesus. And I wanted you guys to listen to what he had to say because it's not so much of a faith testimony more of a truth testimony. And this was quite fascinating for me to find. I don't know how it just appeared, <laughs> but I was like, what? So you must listen to this man uh, in what he says, not so much just on his faith, but why? You do. You've got to first shave your head. You dress all in black. You've got to wear a white robe eat only kosher foods. You've got to become a vegetarian. You face Jerusalem. You've got to face India when you pray. You pray only in Hebrew and you grow a nice big beard. And if you do all of those outward cultural things, you'll discover the God of the universe. And I'm thinking this is crazy that someone thinks that they can force their culture on God and that God's going to be impressed by what you wear, what direction you face when you pray, what you eat, and all these sorts of things. It seemed to me that if there was a God out there who could be known, he should be able to be recognized, 
no matter where I face, no matter how I'm dressed, because he's God. Growing up, we always understood that we had our Bible and the Gentiles had their Bible, the New Testament, and that they were two completely separate books. Because the only people I knew who were believers in Jesus were all people in our public school who were Italian Catholic, I imagined that Jesus was Italian. And so the understanding that he's actually Jewish was a shock. And then to hear that the New Testament was written by Jews, I, I couldn't believe it. My expectation was that the New Testament was like my grandparents had told me. It was a, a book on how to persecute the Jews and something you should stay away from. Of course, when you're told you should stay away from something, <laughs> curiosity gets the best of you and you've got to see it. When I opened the New Testament, I was expecting to find a handbook on how to persecute the Jews. My grandparents had warned me that it was written by people who killed Jews. That's what I was expecting to see. And yet when I'm opening it, I'm reading a story written by Jews about Jewish people. The New Testament was a fascinating book. And so as I opened this book in the library, I kind of looked around, made sure that none of my friends had seen me taking a Christian Bible off the shelf. And I open it, here's the first sentence. It says, this is the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. So three people are mentioned and they're all Jewish. I was very shocked. And as I continue to read, I'm reading the story of a Jewish man who was born in a Jewish village, in a Jewish country, and one day walks into a synagogue and announces that he is the Messiah. The more I read the words of Jesus, the more I became attracted to him. It was as beautiful as anything I had ever read in any other part of the Bible. As I came to faith that Yeshua, that Jesus was the Messiah, it was clear that that was the most Jewish thing I could do. This is not the person who's a renegade to our people. This is the one who was promised in our Bible, the 53rd chapter of Isaiah. It is astonishing. If you would just read that chapter, just without the Bible being around it, you would say, oh, this is some Christian Bible. This is Jesus. <laughs> when you realize, though, that it's in the middle of our Bible, our Jewish Bible, when I first came to faith, I dared not tell my father because this is a time period in the, the 1970s when there were lots of gurus and cults. And he was very concerned about me getting involved in some crazy sect and going off someplace. So I waited for months. And uh, when I finally told him, he was very skeptical. On his own then, he started to read about Jesus as well. About a year and a half later, I told him that the fellow who wrote one of the books that he had read, that this fellow was giving a lecture in the city of New York. And he agreed to come out to hear that person. And uh, one of the most amazing moments of my life was the speaker said, would everyone here who is a Jewish believer in Jesus, would you raise your hand? And I raised my hand. My father also raised his hand. And I said, I looked over, I said, Pop, he didn't say would all the Jews raise their hand. He said, would all the Jewish believers in Jesus raise their hand? And my father looked over and he said, yes, I, I heard what he said. The decision to come to faith in Jesus as the Messiah was not something that 
was a momentary lark. It wasn't something that was a passing fad. And I could see changes in myself that I knew were not from within myself. I had kind of tapped in to a truth for our Jewish people that was very powerful. Now, a lot of people are saying, wow, that's pretty incredible. You know, sometimes I I can tell you that having gone to Israel myself um, a couple of times, I struggle, I really struggle to see why they crucified a man that only had words. The first time I went, I, the mountain upon he, where he was crucified, I, I, I couldn't even bear being at the foot of it. At the foot of that mound, I could not. I felt sick. I was thinking, wow, they just crucified a guy because he was trying to tell people in the way he could for the time that he was in what the truth is. If we just take it bare bones to that, they cut the tongue out of anyone who speaks truth. And I think to myself, all these people that sat there as rabbis teaching the Torah were doing everything but what their own scriptures said they should do. I could not understand it. And so other times that I went, the the last time I went, I actually had the courage to go. And all I could think was, this is where they decided to silence someone for truth. It's just, you know, and I stood there with the assistant who takes care of Christ's tomb. And I was just like, I just can't fathom it. I don't understand. You guys are guilty of the same thing. Because you're silencing words and and notions and you're falling in line with all of these things. And so the Coptic priest, Coptic meaning the the Arab, the the historic, I want to say historic, because they stay to the word, to the T. And it sounds so good in Arabic too, I'm just saying, even though I... um, I can't understand the chanting in Arabic, but he turned and said, well, I mean, they're like children and people that can see are adults. It was just like, that's so weird. Like, how could you say something like that? And I asked him, so the year, you know, we're in the early 2000s now. I mean, how do you educate people of the principles? Don't give it to them as if it's religion. How do you stop what's coming? How do you show them the the golden road to salvation? And, you know, the assistant was like, well, we teach them with prayer and going to church. And I was like, stop, stop. No. Like, how do you convey it? And one thing that Coptic priest told me, and I will never forget, is I guess you just have to speak their language. And so 
I took that, you know, obviously as 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 a linguist by trade, right? I took that and I thought, how do you speak someone's language? How do you convey truth when truth should be naked and um, just bare? You can't challenge truth, but yet, yet we're in times where truth is not only challenged, but it's purported as, as a lie. So how do you convey truth in a language that people understand? And so I, I've been thinking of that so many times. I mean, I took to using the tools that I was taught as weapons of war to understand how they manipulate communication. I understood by standing back from the moon to understand how things get lost in translation. And when I say you do not have ears to hear, it is because you're not tuned into that frequency. Truth is truth. It's naked. It seeks no recognition. It seeks no prize. It simply is. And people are being punished now across the world for speaking truth. You know, I think I mentioned it in the group. I don't remember where. Was it in the admin group or the main group? A couple of weeks ago, I don't know what possessed me because, you know, I have like 99, negative 99 karma points on Reddit. So I just read things. I got onto Reddit and I had, um, I wanted to copy paste a search term, specific one, because I'm looking for an old article of mine and a post turned up. This is two weeks ago before people got the news, a post turned up that says, everybody report Tori says to Twitch because, you know, she's wanted by the attorney general, which is bullshit, right? I met the Supreme Court. I did nothing wrong and she shouldn't be on Twitch. And I thought, why would someone use that and my family's tragedy to report me? How would that make sense? I think I posted it somewhere. I, I reported the user so I couldn't find the comment anymore on Reddit. And I don't know if I've actually taken a screenshot of it. But it was at that point that I said to myself, and I could have told you, ah, I see, this is how it happens. And suddenly, and suddenly, the news comes out that Twitch will be looking at court cases and all of these things to remove people. And I thought to myself, oh, dear, this is it. I believe that I screenshot it. I'm not sure. I believe I did. I'm not sure. But it was quite fascinating to see how it just turned up when I was looking for an article that I wrote a long, long time ago that was actually discussed on, um, on Reddit, giving you a warning about what was coming. Now, I didn't say much, but it was a warning. And I'll post the article. It was about a man who gave his life for blowing the whistle, for blowing the whistle on what was to come. And I've put the link in the chat. Now, many people will say, 
um, you know, and I've seen it. How is it, Tori, that you don't have thousands, hundreds of thousands of followers? But I do. See, I've mentioned this before in other forms. Digital camouflage is not so much obfuscating where you're posting from because they can hear you. They can read you, right? Digital obfuscation is I have 14,000 in one group, 1,000 over here, 200 over there, 10,000 over here, 20,000 over there, 75 over there. When they look at me, they see a small amount. Therefore, I am not a threat under their guise. Now, the link that I put is a dead link because if you remember, my server was deleted the day Millie Weaver and Gavin and her brother and Millie's brother were released from jail. My whole server, including my emails. And it turns out the person that used to write for me, right, clearly and explicitly stated, I'm the only one that has access to her stuff because I gave her full and unequivocal access to my server. I did. I did. You're so dumb, Tori. Why would you do that? Why not? If God wills it, then so be it. If God wills that someone is to cause me harm and the people and take and steal and obfuscate and delay, it will come back to them tenfold, tenfold. I get that a lot. I get it a lot from a lot of people. Why do you trust? Why not? His will will be done regardless. You have to have faith in people. You have to see good in people. And you'll see that the most evil ones are the ones that thump the Bible. The ones that think they know. But boy, boy, boy. When it comes back on you, it, is, it comes back with no mercy. Because when you cause harm, anguish, and pain to people, and you revel in it, or you excuse it, smacks you in the face. You know, when I recommended, well, I should have known when the White House declined to take her on to research that there was something there, but obviously I'm not privy to know what it was. Remember that. I am not one without sin. Oh boy, no. There are many things that I look back on and I thought, what was I, how did I think that doing this to a nation or helping these people was good? How did I convince myself that this was in some shape or form helping make the world a better place? How? And so I thought to myself, I thought to myself, hmm. I guess I had to see it. I had to walk the walk. And therefore, I was able to be 20 steps ahead. As you see, nothing is a coincidence. Nothing just happens. And nothing just appears as whatever. It is truth. And truth stands alone. Here's more truth. I'm going to um, share with you the only channel that I actually watch, because there's only like four people there that are worth watching, um, Newsmax. 
and this will anger you. But Greg Kelly says it right. There are things that they are not telling you, but we're going to get into Beto stuff now. And you heard it here first, folks, because we talked about Beto before. I talked about this in the past. So when the project of transcription, which means if you want to find a term about something I talked about, you can actually search it and it'll search all my podcasts and it'll pull it right there where it said. That's actually the tool I used yesterday to find things to post for you. That's how I'm able to find the clips right at that mark of time where the podcast is. So even though I've migrated my podcast to a more mainstream to assist in obfuscation, right? And obviously, um, you know, with, I, I'm sure those of you that are listening to the podcast are hearing advertisements, um, you know, from various, this helps me stay on the airways. Okay. But I'm still keeping the simple cast because all the searches are being done through there. So I'll continue, you know, paying for that service to make sure that the transcription that someone so selflessly decided to put together um, is there and available. So you can revisit those. So we'll we'll revisit in a, in a recap, but I really want you guys to hear this report by Kelly. America is a sanctuary country. Yep, it's true. Heard that from the great one, Mark Levin, and he's not wrong. Sanctuary country, that's what Joe Biden and Kamala Harris want. This catastrophe is by design. And have you seen it? It's getting worse. Governor Abbott pointed out that some children could be abused in some of these facilities down there. Do they want new voters? Do they want cheap labor? Probably both, but this is bad, and there are no signs of it getting any better. What do we do at this point? The media actually starting to lose interest in this very important story. Write your member of Congress, write Joe Biden. We'll stay on it. Lieutenant Colonel Oliver North joins us in just a little bit. Nobody knows national security better than him. In the meantime, though, Derek Chauvin, he could walk and maybe he should. The George Floyd Chauvin matter. He is on trial for murder. And there is so much in this case that you aren't hearing about. It's emerging subtly in this trial. But are you watching it gavel to gavel? There are some members of the media who are, but they're not paying attention to the key parts or they're ignoring them. They see it, but they're not telling you about it. And I want to reiterate a couple of things that jumped out at me. You've heard that George Floyd tried to pass a counterfeit bill and they called the cops. Wow, all this started just because he tried to pass a $20 bill, just 20 bucks. Couldn't they have let it go? Not a violent situation. Here was the first call. Yes, someone tried to give us fake bills. But then they said this, he's sitting on his car because he's awfully drunk and he's not in control of himself. This is the kind of thing that gets the attention of police. So they showed up. And now they have a man who's not in control of himself, who, according to witnesses, is impaired, and he's in the driver's seat of a car. Then it becomes much more significant than a phony $20 bill. You can't let a guy who's drunk and not in control of himself drive off. The police officers had an obligation to take him out of that car. What else? Did you know that George Floyd was arrested, where they tried to arrest him back in May of 2019? Take a look at this. The 2019 arrest began with a traffic stop. While in custody, Mr. Floyd told officers that he had swallowed several tablets of Percocet 
a strong narcotic, he was taken to the hospital. Now, taken to the hospital instead of jail. And there are some on the side of the defense who believe that maybe that was Mr. Floyd's strategy. If he had a medical seizure or episode, if he took more drugs, maybe this time the cops would take him not to jail, but to the hospital, just like they did in 2019. At one point, George Floyd may have said as much. Does it sound like he says, I ate too many drugs? Listen again. At one point, was George Floyd saying, ah, I ate too many drugs? That was a contention of the defense. They went back and forth, but that's something he could have uttered. What does the jury make of this? We don't know. We don't know. But I would not be shocked at all. I don't think I would even be surprised at this point if they found Chauvin not guilty of murder and even manslaughter. We'll see. It's up to them. But if that happens, I think the public should be ready. I think it would be great to avoid something like what happened in 1992 after the Rodney King verdicts. All hell broke loose in half the country, but particularly in Los Angeles. It was awful. It was horrific. And this time, I think it's avoidable, although it might be too late because the media have sold everyone an incomplete picture of what happened here. All right, time for H&R Blockhead Joe Biden and his taxes. You know, they spend so much time finding out that Donald Trump is a genuine billionaire. They try to catch him in this, that, and the other thing. It hasn't worked so far, and I don't think it will. We'll get to that in a moment. But Joe Biden has some tax issues that the New York Post, God bless them, they're not afraid to pursue. Take a look at this. The Biden's tax returns from 2017 and 2018 and 2019 show that they routed at least $13 million in income through two S-corporations, thereby avoiding Social Security and Medicare payroll taxes. Do you get to avoid Social Security and Medicare payroll taxes? How about this? You know, they set up a foundation for cancer research that, uh, well, check this out. A cancer charity started by Joe Biden gave out no money to research and spent most of its contributions on staff salaries. Huh? Isn't that interesting? But Joe, he always plays it straight when it comes to filling out his tax returns. Just ask him. You've got to be wary of anybody who boasts about how honest they are. Take a look at this. He told People Magazine a few months ago, I remember years ago an accountant said, you know, you can charge part of the gas you use in the vehicle at your home. And I said, no. Here's how I look at it. The foul line is 15 feet away from the basket. Never get me closer than 17 feet because it really is a matter of public trust. Okay, this is the guy who started that foundation, who uh, avoids taxes and sets up S-corporations, right? Right. This is a guy who uh, Mr. Bobolinsky told us the Chinese probably have stuff on him. I think Joe Biden and the Biden family are compromised. That was a huge moment that the mainstream media ignored. They protected him. From Chris Wallace, uh, slightly on the right, to everybody else, they protected him and let him get away with nonsense like this. Because look, Very there are 50 former national intelligence folks who said that what this he's accusing me of is a Russian plan. They have said that this is has all the care Four, five former heads of the CIA, both parties, say what he's saying is a bunch of garbage. That's because those five heads are more than likely within the emails 
that Hunter Biden had on one of his laptops. I can tell you that on the other one of the laptops, what if I told you that they had direct communication with the people that psyoped and helped fund the election theft? Oh, that's coming soon. Nobody believes it except the, his and his good friend, Rudy Giuliani. Rudy Giuliani, Mr. Then Vice President. Well, they were talking about Hunter's laptop. Remember, it turned up at that uh, workshop in Wilmington. Well, guess what Hunter is saying about that laptop now? Oh, yes or no, if the laptop was yours. I don't have any yours. idea. I have no idea. So it could have been yours. Of course, certainly. <laughs> I have no idea. Uh, but it could certainly be my laptop. And then he tried the Russian excuse. He tried all kinds of excuses. Uh, I think any reasonable person can see... He's not telling the truth. Uh, but these questions were not put to Joe Biden in a consistent way. You're about to see the two times that Joe Biden was challenged on these issues with his son, laptop, Burisma, really challenged. Did he confront the uh, issue? Did he take it on? Did he answer all the questions? Mr. Biden, what is your response to the New York Post story about your son, sir? I know you'd ask it. I have no response. It's another smear campaign. Right up your alley. There's another question you always ask. Mr. President, do you still think that the stories from the fall about your son Hunter were Russian disinformation as smear campaign said? Yes, yes, yes. God love you, man. You, you're a one-horse pony. I tell you. Thank you. I think you were going for one trick. Pony, Mr. Uh, can't Vice even say President idioms. at that point. Wait a minute. So he just walked away and didn't answer. Nobody contested that. No one said anything. It's okay that he doesn't answer. If it was the other way around, they would have just made a story up anyway. But they're not. This tells you who's in charge. This tells you who owns you. And the problem is, is that I see that the right is more complacent and complicit with this behavior than the left. And you're going to say, what are you talking about? The left is insane. The leftists are stupid. Have you been down to talk to average people? You know, yesterday, my daughter and I went to uh, uh, a baseball game. We didn't wear our masks um, at all. There were a lot of people that weren't wearing them. I mean, we would put them on when we saw someone, uh, you know, getting all pissy. <clears throat> when we were walking about outside of the area, but we didn't wear them when we were sitting down. Rules are rules, right? That's what they say. You know, we should open up a store that forces people to wear burqa and say, you're not allowed in if you don't and see if we get sued for it or tell people that they have to wear a red t-shirt or a Trump sticker. You got to wear a Trump sticker to come in. Sorry, these are the rules. It's a private business. You don't like it. You can't come in. Let's see how quick you get sued. But anyway, what I realized is that there's so many lies going around and the people are on the right are accepting it more. People on the left are not. They're tired of it. They know that they've been hijacked, right? They know that they have been hijacked, hijacked, completely hijacked. They're not taking any shot. Some, they want to get the free donut, maybe. The crazy granola munchers. You know, it feels as if, you know, if you're a lesbian, you have to be a leftist. You have to wear a mask. It's almost like a cult thing. 
that they can't think for themselves, right? It's, it, it makes no sense. Today in the elevator, uh, my daughter and I were with two people that live in our building. One of them is actually a reporter for the local stations here. And, uh, you know, another person. And they were both wearing masks. And I'm like, so the orders of masks have been pretty much rescinded in the state. Why are you still wearing them? Real question. They were like, I don't know, habit, I guess. I'm so tired of it. I wear it 10 hours a day. And it's like, who's making you? See, people on the right accept these more than people on the left. On the left, you have your really brainwashed people and those that feel that, you know, they have to fit a certain mold. If you're a fabulous gay man, you have to hate Trump. You have to love masks and you have to throw your fist up and hate your skin color. Same goes for the lesbians. And it's like, why? You can think for yourself. Why are other people thinking for you? Minorities, as they like to call them. Black, Hispanic, brown, whatever. I don't see them wearing the masks as much as white people do. The people that are sorry for their skin color, those that abide by that, you know, cultish mentality, were the Bible thumpers, right? That's the thing. What has happened here, and you had to see it to understand it, is that this has woken up the actual Democrat base, like the, the ones that were really Democrats, the thought that they were for them. Again, you're in your skinny schools, they're dumping a shit ton of cash in there, but they're giving you all the shitty teachers that are teaching your kids absolutely nothing. You're the one that says, forget the masks. You're the one that's not wearing the mask in the gym. You're the one that's saying no. Yet the Bible thumpers, the granola munchers, you know, those that fall into that cult thing and those that just want, I don't want to cause any disruptions. To all my black Americans out there, right? There used to be a time when black people had to sit in the back of the bus. And when Rosa Parks got on that bus, she decided to sit in the front. The other black passengers were the first ones to tell her, why are you making things difficult? Right? Why are you making things difficult? Because... You got to get things difficult. You have to push back. You have to have these difficult, you have to be uncomfortable. <laughs> the truth is never comfortable. Change is never comfortable. You know, when you're young, right? You don't remember the pain. Phoebe had to put on her braces again after, you know, because she did like her, she had like a really bad, you know, issue when she was a kid. She was going to get shark teeth and stuff. And she had to do her bottoms and kind of like refix it. She put them on. She's like, I don't remember them hurting so bad, right? And it's because when you're young, you don't recognize pain, growing pains as such. You're sleeping more. Uh, you have a higher tolerance. I know it sounds uh, dumb, but that's true. And now that she's older, she's feeling the pain. She couldn't believe the pain. And she was like, how did I last five years with uncomfortable things? This, this pain of growing. So when we grow, it hurts. When we change, it hurts. Anything 
Anything you do that causes change and growth hurts. Nothing comes easy. Even birth hurts. When you are born, women that have given birth understand there is no pain like having your bones move and bend and squeezing a watermelon out of, out of the side, out of a hole that's the size less than a quarter. No pain, no gain. We're about to go through a lot of pain. And we've been going through a lot of pain. And while you're in pain, they've stuck you in your own prison, feeling that you have no hope. Huh? What do you, what, look at us. We're stealing from taxpayers. We're going to tell you off, but doesn't count for me. We're going to force you to get vaccines. You're going to get on these files because we said so. What are you going to do about it? Media is not going to report it. We've got drug deals. We've got collusion. We got abuse of secret service to let their friends into countries and shit. But that's okay for us. It's just not for you. We're stealing everything and you can't do anything because the news will not report it. No one's going to report it because we own them all. You have no voice. What are you going to do? What are you going to do? What are you going to do? You're going to sit there in your prison and cry? Are you going to sit and pray and say, oh, God, help me? God's going to say, what are you doing? I'm crying because there's no way out. Who says there's no way out? There's no door out of this. There's no window. Make one. Truth is truth, and it can stand on its own, completely on its own. Now, here's how truth comes out when we go to, oh, wait a minute. Where's Beto stuff? Shoot. Okay. I'm going to have to take that one back in time. Damn it. Where is it? Come on, Newsmax. Where are you? To Newsmax. It's the Beto thing. Where's, uh, well, it's not the Beto thing. It's the children in the rail carriages. Where is it? Damn it. Um, hold on. Texas. Oh, did I get it? Kids in rail car. Um, okay. It's not coming up. Okay. That's bizarre. So we're just going to go to the article of the Epoch Times. That's so weird. It disappeared. Here we go. Now, I'll tell you about Beto. Here's truth. Migrants were found packed in three rail cars in Uveld, Texas, near the U.S.-Mexico border on April 9th, 2021. Over two dozen illegal immigrants were found in rail cars in Texas near the U.S.-Mexico border, American authorities said on Fridays. The immigrants were packed into three grain hoppers in Uvalde, which is west of San Antonio and roughly 30 miles from the border. Illegally traveling by train is dangerous and life-threatening. Our agents routine, routinely discover migrants that have sustained severe injuries from jumping on and off moving rail cars. Border agents last month found 16 immigrants hiding inside a storage container while conducting a train check near Hebronville, Texas. Agents discovered that the seal from the storage container's door had been broken so the individuals could gain access and conceal themselves. The individuals used a plastic strap to hold the door closed from the inside, uh, said Border Patrol. 
During the early months of the Biden administration, the number of illegal border crossings has skyrocketed, hitting 172,000 in March. Those are the ones they caught, right? <laughs> Apprehension hit a low of 17,000, right? 172,000 under Biden, 17,000 in April of 2020 during the Trump administration, right? Now, what has been done? Absolutely nothing. But let me tell you about that area with rail cars. So, Beto. Beto O'Rourke is married to someone who's quite rich. His wife is quite well off. I want you to watch this video first about how personal the border is. I also want you to see that he's supporting that butterfly sanctuary bullshit that um, was being talked about just a couple weeks ago. So that's such a hijack of the people. Take a listen to this short old report from 2019. Let my people go. The children live in prison tents. Let my people go. The people live in prison tents. What about the kids right now being mass gang raped and killing each other and people getting killed? But here we are singing songs with Beto. Go down Where is that guy with the guitar? Where is he? Where's that guy with the guitar? How many of you are near that guy with the guitar? Tell him to go start singing outside where the kids are on the floor and getting gang raped. Way down in Egypt land. There's no accident. This isn't Tornillo. It takes two flights to fly in to El Paso. It takes an hour drive from our city center to come out here. Mm -hmm. It's in a remote location on purpose mm -hmm. so that the American people do not know what is happening here. 2,700 kids, some of whom we learned have been here since summer. We're, we're turning our backs, not just on these people, but on our, our best traditions. We're causing suffering. It's so important the American people know that we now have a system of child prisons with 15,000 kids. They are unnecessary. It's part of a strategy, a political strategy. That means it's coming from a very dark and evil place. It's not America. Let's shut right. this place down. Thank yeah. you. There's, there's no reason to spend $144 million going forward uh, and, and keep these kids locked up. So when we get all tied up in this conversation about funding and walls and security and Mexicans who are rapists and criminals coming into our town and changing it by their very presence, not only do we need to remind ourselves that this town, 85% Mexican-American, is thanks to the great members of the El Paso Police Department, the Sheriff's Department, but also because we are a city of immigrants. 24% of those who live here were born in another country. It's one of the safest, one of the strongest, one of the most secure communities in the United States of America. Some years, the very safest city in the United States of America. And this wall and the militarization of our border not only costs us 19 and a half billion dollars a year, that's what you're paying right now, but it also costs us our conscience when hundreds of our fellow human beings lose their lives trying to come into this country. The solution is not walls. It's not more partisanship and rhetoric. It's understanding what our values are, what our reality is here in this country, what we want to achieve, what our ambitions and aspirations are, and legislating accordingly, making sure that our laws match our values, which they don't right now.
If, if we truly are a democracy and the government is the people and the people are the government, we can't lay this on anyone else, including the president, including our, our member of Congress right now, our future member of Congress, on all of us to stand up, to be counted, to make sure that we have the policies that allow us to pursue our potential and our promise. And that's, that's what we are all about as a country, I firmly believe. And that's El Paso's unique opportunity going forward. So thank you all. And uh, I'll now take your questions. Thank you. Thanks for coming out today. So interesting, right? Well, here's uh, an expose of Project Veritas of what's going on in the border. I mean, everyone should be asking Beto why he's not complaining about this at all. He's not complaining about all these children being raped, being held like that. He's not complaining about it right now, right? Where's the guy with the guitar? Where are the people saying free them? This is sick. Here we go. This is especially more important. The crisis on the border right now under this administration is one that they refuse to acknowledge. And our media is non-existent. The corporate media does not want to tell you the truth. This has compelled a growing number of whistleblowers to come forward to get the truth out. James O'Keefe of Project Veritas has been key in exposing the truth about the horrific conditions on the southern border. James was one of the first to release exclusive images of the horrific condition in Joe Biden's detention centers. James joins us now. So tell us, why does it fall to Project Veritas to expose what is actually happening right now on our southern border? Well, Benny, I think it's because the people on the inside of the federal government that are leaking this stuff and working with us, they have nowhere else to go. They, they can't trust because the mainstream media only shows sanctioned images. Things like ABC News mm -hmm. broke a story uh, down there uh, in, in McAllen, Texas, Donna, Texas, showing what they wanted you to see, right? And, and what we have to show people is the unsanctioned images. So the one we broke last week under the bridge, under the International Bridge in McAllen, you see it right there. We actually showed you images of the children on the dirt. That's a federally, it's a federal facility outdoors. It looks like it's not a federal facility, it is. So we're working with a lot of these federal agents who have nowhere else to go because they don't trust the mainstream media to tell their stories. It's important for outlets like ours and yours, Newsmax, to, to be what the media won't be. Yeah, sickening. I'm old enough to remember when transparency was the most important thing. And during a Trump administration, our corporate media would be screaming for transparency, for openness, for access. And now it seems like they're okay just walking around with a drool cup, lapping up whatever their masters give them. Well, this is the problem with, as you pointed out, in journalism. You know, it's first person observational mode reporting. We don't report anything unless you can see the people's faces, quite literally. And in journalism today, it's always people familiar with the situation. You know, it's anonymously sourced stuff, hearsay. We can never verify it. When we do open up the reporter notebooks and actually take a look at what their, who their sources are and what they said, it never quite matches up with what we see. So we don't ask you to trust us. We show you the images. We were the first to break that Donna, Texas story, th those images inside the facility. I went on the location. We were there before anyone else was. They told us it was private property. I'm not sure what they mean by that. There's certainly more to the story if it's private property. That means a landlord is making money uh, off a contract with the federal government. And, uh, you know, it's, it's obviously all political. You know, it, we, we all know that. And, uh, you know, Ocasio-Cortez is not down there. Uh ah, 
Now I told you who that contractor is making tons and tons of money in the telegram group. I also shared with you before the news came out about how they're hiring private individuals with no actual education to go to Guantanamo Bay and how they're hiring all these child people. Remember, follow the money and you can see who's making money off of this tragedy. Uh, crying about it. Um, but you know, it's, it's important for us to continue to serve these whistleblowers. And I know there are some of them watching this program right now. It's Veritas tips at protonmail.com. That's V E R I T A S tips at protonmail. It's encrypted. We've had over a dozen folks reach out to us on the border, more to come inside the desert. What's happening down there with the, what the, the administrative agencies do not want you to see. James, what's the most horrific thing that your reporting has uncovered? Now, before we get into that, because time is of essence here, I wanted to tell you something. The contractors are making money off of the property, but here's where we get to beta. Rail cars. Did you know that his wife, oh yeah, she's really, really rich? And they own property, miles of property, border property of Texas and Mexico. And guess what they have? Railroads. They lease it to railroads, I repeat. They lease it to railroads. Because if you actually look at a map of Texas, Uvalde is quite a ways in from the border on the railroad to be discovered, which means they went through either the Eagle Pass or the Laredo checkpoints of railways with no hiccup where the migrants snuck in if you get what I'm saying. So people need to remember who these people are and what properties they own. Now, as far as the contractor that's making a shit ton of money with these migrants, well, MVM isn't a hard one to find. They're getting tons, billions of your tax dollars, billions. And when you look at the portfolios of those that are sitting so nicely on their thrones, right? nicely on their thrones in the Senate and in Congress. You have to wonder, they want this crisis because not only are their counterparts in Mexico, the cartels, making loads of money, so are they. Now here are the allegations and the neglect in the facility for migrant children by Judge Wolf. The, uh, the, some of the allegations made by Governor Greg Abbott today, including that um, children were being sexually abused, neglected, and essentially starved, and then also not being cohorted. Your reaction to the, each of these allegations? Well, first of all, if it's somebody sexually abused one of those kids, then they, they, they need to get, get them and get hold of them. I've not heard anything like that. Everything the governor said has been a general allegation. I've been out there. I've seen what's going on out there. They're getting three hot meals a day. They're getting uh, two snacks a day. There's a separate tent where 300 of them are cohorted, where up to 300 are cohorted if they do have, uh, if they do have uh, uh, COVID. Uh, so it's a federal facility, as you well know. Health and Human Services is out there. Uh, Homeland Security is out there. Federal Protective Services is out there. No, they're not. Uh, they MVM contractors are out there. It's a federally contracted facility. So judge, speaking of judges, we should look. Remember, we spoke about bloodlines earlier. Well, there's this really big royal spinoff bloodline from Greece called Lycurgos, right? 
And there's a judge, middle, ooh, what is his last name? He's at West Palm Beach, right by our president. Middle, 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 brown, middle, middle, brown, mm, judge, middle, middle, brook. There we go, middle, brook. Son of uh, another one, Donald Middlebrook, ah, that's it. So this judge, I saw with my own eyes, violate his oath. Why? Because there was evidence that they had rigged the election back in 2000, which I knew because I was part of the rigging. And he had received information. He was sworn in by the Clintons, right? And Bush said, I do not want you to do a hand recount of those votes. Nope, 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 nope. Right? And so he didn't. And so he didn't. He helped people get away with a lot of things. A lot of Rico fell through his fingers. He's going to be quite important coming up soon. Ah, soon. Relative factor, the soon part. But he's going to be coming up. And unfortunately, he's in an area he shouldn't be in because, I'm sorry, we're vacating the swamp quite nicely. Maybe he'll resign. Who knows? Regardless, he's in a lot of trouble. Now, this judge, huh? because I've said this before, we've got three branches of government. I've been saying this for over three years. Executive, legislative, and judiciary. And I've said, a nation can survive with a corrupt legislative branch. A nation can survive with a corrupt executive branch. But when your judicial branch is corrupt, you cannot survive. Now, the judicial system on a state level has been corrupted. But slowly but surely, they are not doing the bidding of the others. Why? Because the people have arisen. Now they're getting a barrage of random civil suits from people pro se. And they're like, what do I do? How many times do I decline a request to investigate corruption? How many times do I decline a request of these people? How many times do I cover myself? Because if they come in as pro se and then come back on the appeal with a massive lawyer or law firm, I'm going to go to jail. You see, what judges make a, ooh, make the biggest mistake is, on a local level, is that someone will file something pro se, and they will allow it pro se. And the judge will say, oh, nope, denied based on this bullshit reason, right? Even though all the evidence is there. And so the poor citizen takes back that case and says, gosh darn it, I lost. But why did I lose? He said, I didn't have enough evidence. All right. Then that little person calls a few of their friends and says, guys, I really need a big, hard, pushing attorney. Help me. Can we all pull together? And everybody pulls together. And suddenly, the appeal is done by a massive lawyer. And that judge looks like a complete idiot. But there is a possibility. There is a possibility that that judge will say, okay. So then it has to go to the Supreme Court. 
And then when it goes to the Supreme Court, well, all eyes on you because whatever you do is legislation. Now, you can't change the law. You can't change the rules. Lower level courts can do whatever they want, right? But the Supreme Court can't change the rules. You can't. Because then there's a big problem. Now, those judges on the Supreme Court don't want to say, hey, you guys didn't do your job. They just say, maybe you need to reevaluate this. It's kind of like when my thing went to the Supreme Court the first time, the Supreme Court just said, nope, the lower court has to look at this again. Why? They didn't even say it. Because they were like, shit, we're going, we're going to have to strip the attorney general of his rights. We can't do this. So it goes back to the lower court and they stand by it. So now it's back in the Supreme Court. And it's like, hey, Supreme Court, um, they didn't do their job. You told us, no, that's never happened in history where you're just like, just cause no reasoning. You can't do that. You can't do that. No, 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 no. Naughty, naughty. You can't do that. Cause now it comes back to you saying they didn't do anything. You told them to look at it again. They didn't do anything. Can we take a look at it again? You understand? See, so while all of you are filing cases, right? In your states. Let your lower courts do that. Let them. Because the Supreme Court can't. The Supreme Court of your state makes legislation. They can't change the law. They can't change the law. So pay attention to the power that you have. And you must be patient. And oh boy, am I an impatient. Impatient. I am very impatient. No, who's really patient? President Trump's very patient. I'm not. So I want you to hear what Governor Abbott said before we wrap up. Hold on. Let's uh, put him on. ...who join with me today. Earlier today, the Texas Health and Human Services Commission and the Texas Department of Family and Protective Services separately received tips that allege child abuse and neglect at the federal government's child migrant facility at the Freeman Coliseum in San Antonio behind me. These problems are a byproduct of President Biden's open border policies and the lack of planning for the fallout from those disastrous policies. Complaints that were sent to these state agencies include the following four things. Children at this facility are being sexually assaulted. Second, there are not enough staff to safely supervise the children at this facility. Third, some children in this facility are not eating throughout the day. And fourth, children with COVID are not being physically separated from children without COVID. In short, this facility is a health and safety nightmare. No, it's just a nightmare. This is child abuse. And this is what the Democrats stand for. This is what they stand for. Child abuse. It's terrifying to think that their parents sent them out. Out at the mercy of rapists and drug dealers to come across a border. And they come here. Promise that they're going to be taken in by a family to protect them. And they're getting raped and abused 
And they'll eat whatever they give them because they're hungry. They're taking away their shoelaces because some of them want to commit suicide. They're being treated like animals. If one is sick, they keep it with the healthy. They don't even get health care. Where are all these people that stood by the wall with guitars? Where's AOC? Where's Beto? Where's Kamala? Where's Biden? They don't care. Where is your media? Nowhere. Nowhere. There was a report that a little girl was gang raped by other kids there. And she couldn't even speak because she was screaming so bad that she lost her voice. Where were the guards? Where were the people that are supposed to be protecting them? That's right. They're all contractors. That's right. They're all probably white supremacists too. That's the problem. That's the problem. They don't care about life. These are the people that tell you you can kill a baby right before it comes out of your birth canal. It could be halfway out. You can kill it. They believe it's your right to kill a child. They believe that if someone is sick and losing their mind or crazy, that you should starve them to death because they cost too much money. These are the people that you think care about children, you, your family. No, they don't. I'll see you guys tomorrow. Same time, same place. Oh.